You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. Yay, here I am. Thank you, thank you. So I do have to first say that I was so happy when I heard that my reading could coincide with this exhibit. I just feel so honored to be amidst all these amazing posters, many of which I have known and loved since the 60s and 70s, and also because I have done recent work for the release of the Cuban Five, and we were able to celebrate an amazing victory um, in December when they were released. That was Diana Block, activist and writer, speaking at Interference Archive in the fall of 2015 for her book launch, Clandestine Occupations. Along with a room full of people, she weathered a huge storm to discuss activism and writing. I'm Lonnie Hanna. I also had the opportunity to speak with Diana in San Francisco later in the fall. And... All right, so our names... Um, this is Diana Block, and we're sitting in the um, San Francisco office of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. And I'm Lonnie Hanna, and I am here with Diana Block. essentially been a social justice feminist activist since the early 70s. I became politically involved in the second wave feminist movement, very active in both New York Women Against Rape, and then when I moved out here to San Francisco, I helped start San Francisco Women Against Rape. Then I became involved in more anti-imperialist types of activities. Some were with a women-centered focus around women in Vietnam. I did a lot of solidarity work. I was part of the founding of the Bay Area chapter of the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee, and I worked with that for a number of years until I went underground in the early 80s in solidarity with the Puerto Rican independence movement and the Black Liberation Movement. Up until probably when I went underground, it had that mystified... <laughs> kind of image, you know, it's more referring to um, kind of living, giving up your political identity or your identity that is tied to a radical politics in order to be able to do work in a way that would be more, less visible to the state. There were at that time forces who were really trying to develop clandestine practice and saw it as multifaceted in terms of being able to build an infrastructure and set of networks that could provide refuge, security, safety to people who maybe would be on the run because of political activities. That was the era when both Asada Shakur and Guillermo Morales had escaped from prison. So we saw that type of um action is something we would really want to be able to support. And when you think of that kind of thing, there's the 
the action itself. Then afterwards, how do they keep themselves safe? How do they escape the eyes of the police? And so that was what we were trying to accomplish. I mean, we really did see it as an experiment. Unfortunately, it was not an experiment that uh, was very successful in that era. And, you know, the, always the question comes up, well, was it wrong? Was it right? I mean, I do believe that there was a validity to trying to figure out some type of a clandestine infrastructure in that era and that you would have to make mistakes in order to figure out something correctly. But it did not work very well for many reasons, too complicated to get into now. And I don't have a position and advocacy around the current era, which is very different in many ways in terms of the, the political landscape and the forces that are or aren't leading things. And so, but at that time, I think it was, it was a valid effort. Our effort came to an abrupt, I don't know if not an end, but when we were subject to um, an FBI sting that then uh, we were placed under surveillance and we were able to discover the surveillance and then get rid of it. But then for the next essentially nine years, we were just living underground without really um, do, doing political work uh, in relationship to our position. I mean, we did other political work, but it wasn't, we were always worried about our security and whether we were going to be caught. So um, eventually we were very, we were able to negotiate a deal with the state. They really did not want us to stay underground. I mean, that's, they gave us a deal. They didn't want these people to continue this, uh, to, to be a, a threat in that way. And so we had a great lawyer and we were able to negotiate this deal without betraying anything. That was, uh, that was a victory. So we had a couple of, good victories. That was one, and escaping from the FBI in Los Angeles was another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. If anyone's interested in um, hearing more about that story, Diana wrote a memoir called Arm the Spirit, A Woman's Journey Underground and Back, and um, also a recent book, Clandestine Occupations. One is fictional and one is not. Memoir was something I really, I really wanted to do almost immediately after I um, came back to public life in 1995. But I had two young kids. I had to work. My partner Claude was in prison, and um, it wasn't possible. What can I say? But then, at a certain point, all those pressures kind of um, loosened up, and I was able to write it. And I tried to really explain how I saw those politics and why we made the political decisions that we did, because it can be very mystified and unclear to people in a younger generation as to what possibly could have motivated us. The novel um, deals with some of the same issues or the, certainly the same politics, but I think it really tries to deal with people who have, who are impacted by those politics from another vantage point and who intersect 
with them, but are not the hardcore activists. And it was something I really wanted to explore because I did meet a lot of people who I valued and were very important to me, but who definitely were coming from a different place. I also wanted to explore how politics of my generation impact younger people. So one of the characters in the book is a young woman who has a varied relationship to this history and goes and visits a woman political prisoner and is very deeply impacted by the relationship she has with her. And that is I did really want to open up that piece of um, how politics does get carried forward to different generations like your own. Okay, so the first piece I'm going to read is um, called Missing. The woman who is speaking, her name is Belinda. The date is 1986. First, I wasn't worried when Lynn disappeared from my life. She had disappeared before and returned. It was August in Los Angeles, and all the people who can get away pack their bags. If I could, I too would escape from the broken backs, the torn meniscuses, and the arrogant doctors of the ortho ward at Arcadia Memorial Hospital, where I put in my mind-numbing 64-hour weeks. I figured Lynn must have gone to visit her family with her new baby. I wouldn't have given it a second thought, if it weren't for the envelope hidden in my basement that I had promised to safeguard for her. Lynn had called me right after her baby was born in the beginning of August. I knew that he was born on August 2nd, that her labor was five hours long, and that the baby's name was Alex. Alex is my favorite uncle, she explained, even though I hadn't asked about the origins of his name. I bit my tongue and didn't say, if Uncle Alex is such a favorite, why haven't you ever mentioned him to me before, which was what I was thinking. With most people, I didn't give a shit and just said what was on my mind, but I had come to be more careful with Lynn. She deserved that consideration. Lynn liked that I was blunt. About a week after she started working evenings at a unit clerk on the ortho ward, she came up to me as I was doing my charts. I heard what you said to that doctor, she began in her serious, husky voice. Already eavesdropping on confidential nurse-doctor conversations, I said, kidding, not sure where she was coming from. But she wasn't put off. Dr. Stanwick was accusing that elderly black patient who had just had back surgery of manipulative behavior because he wanted more pain meds. I interrupted her. Oh yes, young Dr. Stanwick just finished med school and he thinks he's the supreme authority on pain and manipulation. But sweetie, that's my specialty. So I told him that poor Mr. Williams needs his meds or he isn't going to be able to heal correctly. I stopped myself before I turned it into a rant. Weren't you worried you'd get in trouble telling a doctor that you knew better than he did? Oh, it's okay. If they fire me, I'll just go back to being a waitress almost as much money and less stress. Lynn laughed, and when she did, her mouth relaxed, and she stopped being such a super solemn chick. It made me want to get to know her, even though it was against my rules to get too friendly with anyone at work. So Belinda goes against her rules, and she does get to know Lynn better, and she invites her over 
after a few other false starts to listen to her jazz collection, and that works. Lynn falls for it, and because um, she had her own agenda anyway. She goes over to Belinda's house, and they're talking, and Belinda introduces Lynn to her dogs. She has five dogs, and one of the dogs' name is Consuela, and Lynn is very surprised and asks her why she has a Spanish name since all the other dogs have Irish names. Belinda explains that her father is Puerto Rican, her mother is Irish, and Lynn is very surprised. Uh, Belinda doesn't quite understand why she's so surprised, isn't sure if it's because she's uptight about Puerto Ricans or what, but, but they, they let that go, they smoke a couple of joints, they're listening to the music, and Lynn asks Belinda, did you ever meet your grandmother, Consuela? No, but my father would show me pictures of her in the house where he grew up in some village in PR. He would point to the flag that was flying on top of the house and say, that's my bandera, not the fucking stars and stripes, our Puerto Rican bonita bandera. God, I hadn't thought about any of this for so long. I couldn't believe it was coming out of my mouth now. Was he an independentista? Lynn asked. Now that stopped me. Of course I knew the word, someone who wanted Puerto Rico to be independent. I had done a paper on the independence movement for some class in college, and learning all that stuff I never knew about Puerto Rico blew my mind. When Lynn said the word independentista, a picture immediately popped into my head of Lolita Lebron being arrested in Washington, D.C. I had spent hours staring at the photo while I was supposed to be doing my report. She was fiercely beautiful, even in that terrible moment, wearing a tailored suit and pillbox hat. I couldn't believe that she and three Puerto Rican men had gone into Congress, unfurled a Puerto Rican flag, and started to shout and shoot at the assembled lawmakers. It was totally incongruous that this impeccable lady had just stood up in front of all those old white men and interrupted their tea party. But that was the point. No one saw it coming. Those crazy independentistas were able to get the white guys to stop whatever bullshit they were talking about. They made the world pay attention, if only for a few minutes, to the fact that Puerto Ricans didn't want the U.S. to keep controlling their land, their water, the air they breathed. They didn't want to be a fucking U.S. colony anymore. Even with policemen on both sides of her, grabbing her arms, even when she knew she was going to prison, Lolita looked cool and unflinching. I kept looking at the picture to try and solve the puzzle, but somehow I never could. Lolita was beautiful and brave, but she was loca. I could understand being that angry, but I couldn't wrap my mind around risking my life for some ideal like independence, especially when she must have known damn well that shooting up Congress may be a showstopper, but it wasn't really going to make Puerto Rico free. But Lynn probably had a different take on the whole situation. She pronounced the word independentista like she was used to saying it. Like for her and her friends, it meant something familiar and real instead of some foreign fantasy concept. She made me realize how little I really understood about Puerto Rico and I started feeling mad all over again. That's kind of the beginning of the book and start of the whole trajectory of the story. So thank you so much, all of you. <laughs>
been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.